Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Rob Apps, the director of a new documentary chronicling the preservation of New England lighthouses and profiling some of those who have taken on the responsibility of caring for and occupying them. Rob's film is called The Last Light Keepers, and it will be featured among the films screened at the Newburyport Documentary Film Festival beginning September 17th. The film is also available through Amazon Prime Video, where a portion of each rental goes toward the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses to assist with preservation costs of Whaleback Lighthouse. Here's the film's trailer. Pretty good now, I'm going. Got the bow line? Yeah. You may hit the rocks on the way in. Here we go. I definitely think uh, history is on the back burner in our public schools uh, and private schools. There's just so much more to learn as time goes by. So where do we put this very important topic? These lighthouses are as old as our country. They're part of our history and they're part of our culture. So this is a nice way to make them shine again. It's striking to be here, and some people just weren't acquainted enough with what this was like, and they thought I was nutty. And for the most part, when people get out here and see what a dramatic place this is and how historically significant this lighthouse is, they tend to have a better understanding of why I'd be passionate about this place. Anybody who loves lighthouses, anybody who cares about lighthouses, has to make themselves into one of the last lightkeepers. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with friends. And now on to my conversation with Rob Apps. Hello, Rob Apps, and welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Happy to be here. Rob is the director of a great documentary called The Last Light Keepers, which is going to be among many documentaries, long form, short form, that are going to be featured at the Newburyport Documentary Film Festival uh, coming up later this month, and this month being September of 2021. So, Rob, tell us a synopsis of The Last Light Keepers, if you would. This film was such an epic adventure for me personally, but uh, the film is really about the the history and important events of lighthouses. And then I paralleled that with the um, preservation uh, efforts that are happening today. 
And the lighthouses that you focus on are all in New England, correct? Yeah, I figured um, I wanted, since I was a one-man band on this journey, um, I wanted to keep it relatively close to home. I grew up right outside of Boston and spent a lot of summers on the coast of Maine. Um, so it's really, you know, a, a part of my soul, uh, I like to think, and, and being in New England and just love traveling New England. So I wanted to make this um, a little bit easier of a journey for me, but uh, proved to be there's a lot of a lot of shoreline in New England and a lot of places to explore. So there's there's quite the depth there, even at just being in New England. And was there anything in particular, uh, either from a his- history standpoint or even from a, uh, you know, maybe a symbolic standpoint that drew you to wanting to tell the story of not just the role of the lighthouses, because the the film does a great job doing that, but also the ebbs and flows, no pun intended, uh, around who was responsible for uh, the upkeep and the maintenance and the the manning of the lighthouses and the road that's taken. What what was it about the story of lighthouses in particular that excited you? Yeah, there's probably there's probably a few um, a few events or, or things that happened in my life that probably drew me to lighthouses. Um, I think for everyone, uh, if you you know if you drive to some of the more popular lighthouses like Portland Head Light, you can't even find a place to park. So there was definitely something there that was drawing people to to visit lighthouses and what they meant to them, what that symbol was, whether it was you know a place just to have lunch with your family, a place to go explore, or maybe a lighthouse you know meant stability to you or a guiding light or something religious. And so I knew that there was a lot of people going to lighthouses. And so I was curious to find out why. Um, then there's a lot of lighthouses that didn't have the upkeep like Portland headlights. So I was curious to know what was happening with, with those lighthouses. But for me, I grew up on the water. My grandfather was a sailor and an avid boater. And so I spent summers in Maine, you know, traveling in and out of coves and, and being aware of aids to navigation, not only just lighthouses, but you know, the, the new England coast and especially mid coast Maine is such a dangerous area, um, as a boater. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's every time you go into a certain cove, it's, it's an adventure there. And, um, I, I imagine what life was like when there were no aids to navigation and you were, you know, traveling, you know, the sea in the middle of the night, trying to navigate these areas, it must've been incredibly difficult. And then another thing too, was just, um, I'd come across some stories of people buying lighthouses. I didn't know you could buy a lighthouse. I didn't know they were coming up for sale. And, um, and so I met a few, a few people along the way, especially Dave Waller who bought, um, Graveslight in Boston Harbor. And I had met him while working on another documentary. And so that kind of sparked my interest. I looked into, you know, the auctions that were happening and came across halfway rock light and Boone Island light and, and wanted, I personally, I wanted to buy a lighthouse. I was, I was hooked. I was curious. I was like, what are people doing? Maybe I should buy a lighthouse. And then I quickly realized the effort and the amount of money and the passion you needed to, to not only buy these, but, you know, to, to upkeep and maintain them. Yeah. So go into that process for our listeners just a bit. The whole the whole process of uh, these auctions for these lighthouses and the entity that the lighthouses are in possession of uh, before they get put up for auction and how that process works. Yeah. So you imagine um, as technology advanced in the 1960s, um, there was no need for really lighthouses anymore. And the Coast Guard, who was, you know, had keepers stationed there no longer could afford to to have them, you know, have people maintaining them, fixing them and running them. And so things started to, to get automated. And as that happened, they pulled the keepers, they pulled that human element out of lighthouses. And, you know, without that human element, decay and neglect and these things happen. I mean, if you spend a day at the beach, you know how how rough it can be and what it feels like on your skin. So imagine this for a lighthouse for, for 40, 50 years. And so um, in 2000, the National Historic 
Lighthouse Preservation Act was passed, which was a mechanism for the Coast Guard to dispose these lighthouses. And so through that process, it initially goes to um, government entities, uh, you know, uh, local communities and nonprofits, you know, transfer for free, basically, um, if they're willing to maintain them. And that happened for a lot of the onshore lighthouses because they're easy to get to, a little bit easier to maintain. You can get people there for tours. So there's a little bit more um, ease of use when it comes to onshore, but with offshore, that becomes a whole difficult beast, you know, getting out to the lighthouse, trying to be, you know, you're really in the elements out to sea, sometimes 10, 15, 20 miles out there. And so when there was no local or nonprofit entities that wanted to take over, they go up for a private bid and private ownership. And that is kind of a lengthy auction process that goes kind of crazy, as you'll see in the film. Um, Ford Reiki, who bought Halfway Rock in Casco Bay, 10 miles out to sea, he went toe to toe for months because the process works that the bidding resets, you know, every 24 hours, if someone makes a bid until that ends, there's, there's no end until, you know, someone doesn't bid for 24 hours. And that process went for, for months for him. So some of these lighthouses have gone up, you know, for auction for 10,000, all the way up to nearly a million dollars, which was Graveslight in Boston Harbor. Yeah. I was, I was um, amazed at that, the, the span of, of the cost of the lighthouses. I mean, on the one hand thinking, oh my God, you could get this lighthouse for $30,000 or somebody else is paying, you know, as you, as you said, almost a million dollars for one. And then somebody makes the important point in the film that, you know, the day you win the auction, that's when the real work begins. That's when the real investment of financial resources begins. Yeah. And that was uh, Eric J. Dolan, who's a, a best-selling author, author who lives in Marblehead. Um, and he wrote the book Brilliant Beacons, which is a great history on uh, American lighthouses. And yeah, it's, that's a really good point because it's, you know, not only did Dave Waller spend close to a million dollars is now he's rehabbed that lighthouse completely, as you can probably read in the newspapers these days. Um, he's done it. Him and his family have done a, tr- you know, a tremendous amount of work. And it's pretty incredible that they were willing to, you know, really empty their pockets to do to do a project like that. There's a portion in the film that is uh, really fascinating that deals with the lenses that are in the lighthouse or probably not all the lighthouses, but, you know, some of the lighthouses. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that story. And the biggest question that I had when I was watching it is, are these ginormous lenses, uh, are they assembled in the lighthouse or are they assembled and then somehow transported to the lighthouse? I'm not entirely sure the history of how they did that. I mean, it, it is an incredible feat when you see some of these first order um, lenses. Um, I mean, these lenses are about the size of a room. Yeah. And there's there's a great one in the Cape Ann Museum um, that Paul St. Germain and the Thatcher, Thatcher Island Association were able to to scrounge up and, and find buried in boxes in, the, in a museum, I believe, in Washington, D.C. And um, they brought it back and assembled it in that museum because, yeah, as you can imagine, they're their size of a room. You can't carry these. You can't lift these. Um, Dave Waller tried to get Graveslight um, their their first order for an L lens, but that was in the Smithsonian. There was no way they were going to get their hands on that. And so they kind of, he doesn't like to use the term Frankenstein, but that's basically what they did. They found bits and pieces of first order lenses that existed all over the, over the world really, and rebuilt it um, at his home, which is a really cool feat. So 
Um, they're amazing. They're amazing works of art when you look at them. I mean, it's it's incredible the design and, and the power that they had at the time. The light, you know, couldn't really go very far until you you know you wouldn't see it as a mariner until you were maybe a half mile or a mile away. And now you could send a light twenty miles out to sea, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, that that is pretty mind mind blowing, particularly when you you know sort of consider them pushing the envelope of the technology of the time. And and I think it's Dave who makes the really good point that the engineers that created these, thinking of them as pieces of technology, but also as pieces of art, and they they very much appear that way. As do the lighthouses themselves. I thought one of the one of the great aspects of your film was the variety of architecture, of you know in and around the lighthouses and and the structures themselves. How did you go about finding uh, light keepers, lighthouse keepers, um, who would uh, consent to be part of the film? Yeah, I really have to thank Jeremy Dontremont, who's really a, a local historian, leading lighthouse expert um, in the region and, and for, for the United States, really. Um, he was the first person I was, you know, when I searched New England Lighthouses, his name popped up and I interviewed him maybe back in 2014. And I, you know, I plan to just do a one hour on camera interview with him. And we spent maybe three or four hours up in Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. I kind of held him hostage up in the uh, watchtower up there. And uh, it was a great conversation. And that's when I realized there was a really big story here. But because he was so um, ingrained in the history and the culture of lighthouses and all the work that he's done and partnered with other people that he started giving me names. And then when I would meet, you know, people like Ford Reiki, he would give me names. And so it kind of snowballed from there. So it was really great that that community um, not necessarily worked together on every single lighthouse, but they knew of each other. And I think they really took bits and pieces of preservation um, success and, and kind of handed that off. And they did that for me when making the film. Did you observe any commonalities of maybe uh, personality types that might be drawn to not just lighthouses as kind of historical artifacts, but also the commitment of time and resources to actually uh, man the man the structures? Yeah. And I think there's, there's two, there's two real sets of groups. There's the nonprofit groups and then there's the private ownership and the private ownership is really interesting because these are very successful business people, um, really creative people. Um, and then really passionate people, uh, Ford Reich is a great example of a very successful person. Um, but also very interested in preservation. Same with Dave Waller, um, has preserved other, um, buildings and and has unique collections of neon signs and things like that so they're they're very eclectic people but also um very great business people they understand what goes into large projects um real estate projects um and i I think that's kind of a unique thing too is that there there was sort of this underlying uh real estate opportunity that i didn't really get into but i think it's it's the rarity of you know having property on the water um that's that's so uh what's the right word like there's there's not many of them and it's 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 incredible to to get your hands on that so i think it was it was that opportunity but also to kind of be a part of history um for nonprofit groups it's a lot harder for them to raise the money mm-hmm. so there is kind of that balance of when a lighthouse should go to private ownership but you can't access it you know and then when it goes to public you know a nonprofit there's public um access to it so there's kind of that debate as well um mm-hmm. so yeah there's no there's so many unique characters in the world. And and that was kind of the toughest thing about this project was finding, you know, the, the, the right balance of people to tell this story. And, um, I'm, 
it, if COVID wasn't around, there was, there were some opportunities to tell some more stories. Um, but I, but I decided that maybe it was time to, to wrap this up and, and get it out in the world. In the case of somebody like Ford, who, if I recall correctly, uh, he took ownership of the one in Casco Bay, correct? That's right. Yeah. Halfway rock. So how much time is he actually physically living in that lighthouse? My guess is he's not. I mean, I think it's more of he'll he went out there to work, work on it for the last, you know, let's see, that was 2014 is when he, I think, acquired it. So probably until two years ago, did he really finish restoration? He put one big year into to really bringing Halfway Rock back to life. So I imagine he's not spending weeks out there. And that's I don't think you want to personally. I think there's there's kind of this romanticized vision of living at a lighthouse. And then when you get out there, you're, you're just exposed to the elements. You're, you know, the, the seagulls like Thatcher Island take over, they dive bomb your head. Um, when you get caught out there in bad weather, it's, it's pretty frightening. And so I think we had this idea of living out at sea as this, this magical time. But really I think after one or two days, you just want to go back home to civilization and, and see some people too. Well, I have to say that films that are made so as beautifully as yours contribute to that romanticism. <laughs> I was I was watching. I mean, talk about just uh, beauty shots. The, your film is just rife with them. You've got the lighting. You've got the coast. You've got the uh, you know the grandeur of the waves and the surf. Uh, you really had just all of those elements. And I think if that. Um, aspect of your personality, that sort of romantic idealist. You can think of uh, people watching that and saying, oh, yeah, I think I, I want to be there and I'll write that great novel. I'll write those poems and I'll tend to the lighthouse a bit, too. But I, I, I'm taking it. The reality is a bit different. Absolutely. And I, I joke around with people after I you know made the film. I said that I kind of cheated the system a little bit because the area is so beautiful. The landscape so beautiful. And if you go out there, you know, in a New England um, morning and sunrise, just the colors you see are incredible. So I, I feel like I kind of cheated a little bit by picking a film about lighthouses just because they are so beautiful, but yeah, they can be, they can be dangerous. There's a few scenes in the film of, you know, trying to, to land at halfway rock and it's just treacherous. I mean, halfway rock surrounded by 360 degrees of crashing waves and you have this small narrow slip you need to land on. And if you miss, you know, you end up on the rocks with the crashing waves. So yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty uh, compelling scene. So in your, you're on the boat and, and it's a, it's a pretty small boat and, and the, and who's driving the boat to get out there at the time that was Ford. So he's the owner. And, you know, there's a couple, a couple other, um, individuals that help him with some of the work, uh, for restoration at the time. And so it was me between them. And, and one of the first times I'd gone out there, I had no idea, you know, we parked the boat and the waves are crashing and he was like, yeah, I think it's fine to go out there. And in my head, I'm, I'm like, I have all my camera gear and one backpack. I mean, luckily it was just me. So I wasn't worried about another person getting hurt or anything in the filmmaking, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you just, you ride that ramp up in the same way on the way out, you ride that ramp down. And one of the times when we were leaving, we, uh, that dock had been washed away many times um, over the years and Ford had rebuilt it. But underneath there was some rebar, some old iron that must have been holding, you know, previous pieces of wood for the ramp. And uh, on our way down, we slid down like a toboggan and we caught one of those pieces of iron and it punctured a hole in the boat. And, and for a second, I, I thought, OK, so I guess this is how I lose all my camera gear. And uh Luckily, it, it didn't deflate that quickly. And we got back to his, he's a really nice, um, you know, Coast Guard type boat that he he received from auction. And uh, yeah. that has, you know, uh, 
spring absorbed seats and it's, it's so luxurious, but you know, I can, I can't imagine what it was like back in, you know, the 1800s and, and early 1900s trying to row out to some of these places, you know, especially in the elements. So. Well, he does, he does even mention in that scene that um, there had been times that he tried the approach and he wasn't able to, he wasn't able to access uh, the ramp because of the, uh, the harsh conditions. So when I was watching that scene, I'm noticing, all right, so there's, it, it was obvious you're in the boat. And then there's this really cool, like drone footage, this overhead shot of you leaving the boat. How did you orchestrate all of that? That's just the magic of filmmaking. I don't know if I can give away those secrets. <laughs> okay. Does that have anything to do with something called post-production? <laughs> yes. Luckily, yeah. Luckily, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my career as an editor and animator. But, yeah, no, I've, I went out to Halfway Rock several times. So, as you can imagine, there's multiple multiple trips that I've been out there. And so, yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was really cool, and one of the one of the biggest things I learned was to always be you know always be filming at all times. So I ended up getting a, a GoPro, just something that was a little more waterproof for those moments and those experiences. So you know, uh, here on Making Media Now, we do crazy things like pay attention to the credits, and I was noticing there were a lot of people who got a cinematographer credit. So tell me about the process of. You know, sort of pre-production when you were thinking about, I, I want to make sure, as you just said, that you were rolling pretty much continually and getting all these different angles and then how you kind of um, uh, took inventory of what you had and 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 made a story of that. So I would say about 99% of this was shot by me. I mean, when you're going out to some of these, these lighthouses, I kind of would have, you know, maybe less than 24 hours notice to go out there and it would be a Wednesday morning or something. And so I kind of had to be a one man crew. And then for some of the, you know, longer interviews with our historians, like Jeremy Dontremont and uh, Eleanor DeWire and Eric J. Dolan, I wanted to make sure that some of their interviews had a little bit more more movement to them. So I did have some, some filmmakers come along. And then once I kind of got all the pieces put together, I wanted to go film some more lighthouse imagery, whether that was through aerials or, um, you know, just getting out to some of these coastlines and, and capturing from different areas. And, uh, ended up contacting instead some filmmakers that had already shot some footage that I thought would work really well. So that's why there's several cinematographer credits, um, for some license that they, I mean, for some, uh, footage that they let me license. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about your development as, as a filmmaker. What, where did you take inspiration initially? And, you know, if, if you could describe your ideal type of project, what would it be like? Yeah, for me, it's always been about finding an interesting nook in New England, going down a road I've never been down before or walking in a different direction on a beach to see what's around, you know, that corner and things like that. And so back in 2014, when I started this film, I'll call it the original start. Um, I had just contacted a bunch of people that were doing interesting things in the world, um, you know, or just interesting stories. There was one about a boxer who turned a Marine then back to a boxer and was trying to get a, you know, a title fight. And there was a bamboo rod maker and just things that interested me. Um, I, you know, I always grew up in the outdoors of new England and I always played sports. And so I've always been fascinated with kind of those, those types of stories. And then one of the stories I came across was, was just people um, buying lighthouses and this idea of people preserving lighthouses. And so I told, uh, I'd filmed a, you know, just a short eight films about, you know, certain preservationists and the lighthouse that they worked on. 
and that kind of where I drew the inspiration from to, to tell a bigger story. It was such a challenge. I mean, there's so many different stories with lighthouses. Um, there's so many different lighthouses. So every lighthouse has about a million stories. Um, and so that was kind of the challenge with this film was figuring out how to weave in and out of these stories. And I, and I think the big thing was, you know, telling the history of, of lighthouses, uh, sort of an educational thread, but then also using that as a way to show why these people are passionate and why these people are keeping up certain traditions and why people are preserving these lighthouses, whether it was a, you know, a personal, a personal journey or just something that they, you know, they wanted to do. Is there a aspect of the whole production process that, that you like more than another? Yeah, I guess it depends on the day, but um, I, I, I think for me getting out there, with a camera and meeting people is, is always exciting. Getting, talking to people, um, interviewing them, not so much as like a formal interview, but just hearing their story and um, being kind of a fly on the wall, um, which is why I usually work as a one man band or a small crew is I, mm-hmm. I don't want people to ever feel overwhelmed in documentary. Um, I, I, I'm in, you know, a lot of my filmmaking inspiration comes from my grandfather's home videos from when we were a kid, whenever we would travel to Maine, I'd open up that cabinet that had a row of VHS tapes and I would pop them in, you know, from when I was just a little kid or my mom was even um, a little kid. And it's just that capturing those, those real moments, um, whatever they may be of people just being happy or people being inspired. And that's really where I, where I drew a lot of this from. And would you say that was your inspiration and, and how did you acquire kind of the nuts and bolts skills of, of shooting and editing, et cetera? Well, I started, I started filming probably, uh, when I was seven or eight years old. Um, that was when my grandfather gave me his VHS camera. I think it was a little bit of his passing of the torch moment to, to create home videos, I think for the family. Um, I think he was probably tired of it lugging around that giant camera, uh, his whole life. So he handed that off to me. And I think that's something I've, I've always done making movies in the backyard with my friends, which then turned to me going to school um, to study cinematography, graduating from Ithaca College, and then getting my first job at a news station, and then moving into the advertising world. And that sort of opened the doors for for me getting back into telling documentary stories um, Mm -hmm. with brands. And so that's really where a lot of it came from. So you also have a production company called uh, Wonder Groove Productions. And are you guys focused uh, primarily in the branded content space? That's where I'd like to be. Um, I think it's it's fun to to tell, you know, the culture of brands through filmmaking and mm-hmm. what they want to accomplish and, and through storytelling and, and, you know, their users. And so that's where I, I love to be in the space. I love to live. Any uh, documentary projects that are on the back burner right now, or maybe even the front burner that that you're starting to put together? You know, it's funny you say that because this morning I was watching a movie and I came across a visual in the film and I it got me thinking about something. And so I dug in a little bit deeper and uh, I think it might have sparked a new idea, which I wasn't planning on doing anything at the moment, especially with a, another feature length film. Um, I, I joke that my wife might, might leave me if I, if I do another feature length film that took five years. So I want to make sure that I, I You'll put in move to a lighthouse. Exactly. And she might, she might put me there. Um, but I, I want to make sure that I could do it a lot quicker, especially if I'm going to do it as a solo mission again. I mean, there's something, there's something to say of doing it as a, as a one man band, which is fun. Um, but if I could get a crew together and do this, do this the real way, the right way, um, and something a little bit quicker than five years, I'd like to do it. So trying to, trying to get that started, I think in the next, maybe in the next month or two and get it going. 
Very cool. So the, the film is called The Last Light Keepers uh, for people who uh, are listening to this podcast and they live uh, around the Newburyport, Massachusetts area. The film will be featured at the Newburyport uh, Documentary Film Festival, which is going to be a hybrid um, festival this year, both virtual and live and in person. And you can check out their website for the schedule. But Rob, also let us know where folks can find this uh, in the video on demand world. Yeah, you can visit um, thelastlightkeepers.com. You can find all the information about the film, the people involved, and you can read more uh, press articles and find out where the film has screened and will be screened. Um, But yeah, you can also visit uh, Amazon and search The Last Lightkeepers and you'll find the film there as well to to rent or purchase. And one of the great things about purchasing the film online is that a portion of the earnings is going to the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses to support Whaleback Lighthouse. So it's a really cool uh, thing that you can be a part of for that. That's excellent. That's excellent. Well, it's a uh, it's a fantastic viewing experience and so obvious that it was made with uh, a real passion. It's it's a beautiful film and it's super informative. You know, despite the hardships, it it did provoke that romantic notion in me to want to spend some time in a lighthouse. I don't know if it'll happen. I think I think we'll have to make that happen. We'll take you out there. We'll find one. <laughs> okay, Rob Apps, thanks so much. I appreciate your time and uh, thanks for joining us on Making Media Now. Appreciate it. Have a good day.